Your show's rubbish. Welcome to another episode of the D-Trout Spinners with your friends, Miles Pennell and Gary Forrestal. How are you doing, Gary? We'll come to your wedding if you want. I will. <laughs> Any bar mitzvahs will be there. We're your real friends, <laughs> we promise you. Um, yeah, no, I'm okay, mate. And uh, how are you? I'm, do you know what? I'm, I'm really Not really interested, well. to be honest. It was a rhetorical question. Let me go but... into a bit more detail, mate. <laughs> I've been to the cinema a lot this week. I've been t- twice and it's been really enjoyable actually quite overwhelming when you walk into a big auditorium full of people so it's been really nice to get out and about go for some drinks and feel like i've got a bit more of a life than i already had mate yeah and it you. is nice and, and it, I've, I've been for drinks well because it's my birthday on the uh the 14th of may yeah thanks get, get, got me nothing 37, as usual uh, 37, my dad baby. got me my dad my dad got me a really good card did i show you the card my dad did he get you it the doesn't, completed doesn't... speeches of Sir Winston Churchill? Now, this doesn't look good. Do you notice anything about this card? It's got little dinosaurs on there, some pizza. Yeah, it's a it's a card for a seven-year-old, but he cut, and my dad doesn't <laughs> do it. He can't do it. He cut a three, like in cardboard. Oh, and then your he, dear dad. Yeah, I did a third. He said, but he got me a seven-year-old's birthday card. <laughs> oh, um, but anyway, I think we should we should we should say right now that we've had a very special show, this show. And uh, I'll be honest, I'm not gonna lie, this is like a little media thing, like we just didn't have time to do it before. We've actually already done it, but we've interviewed Matt Everett, who is uh, BBC Music. Music Radio 6 presenter. He does interviews. He's interviewed everyone. He's also been a drummer in a Britpop band, menswear. Uh, amazing interview. And uh, I'm not saying amazing for what, you know, we didn't do amazing, but it was amazing to interview him, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Matt is just, it's just the best, like, and, and such a varied career, like, presenter, journalist. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm pretty speechless. Yeah, it's just yeah. someone who's really, you know, in the industry and knows what he's talking about. And just having the opportunity to talk to him was was fantastic. I forgot to ask if he could put in a good word for us at BBC Music Radio Six, but <laughs> that's the only thing I, I forgot. But but no, he was uh, he he was great, and he's kind of you know he we 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 spoke about his the beginnings of his love for music, how he got into radio. We spoke about audio in general because you know if you're a regular listener to us. We spoke about the medium of audio and what it means and things, obviously, because our show is about the XFM Ricky Gervais show podcast. And he gave a really interesting answer on what audio means. He gave a fascinating kind of dissection of the Blur versus Oasis debate. He was just, it, it, it was just fantastic. And he really kind of, he was relaxed and we tried to keep it relaxed as well. And hopefully he appreciated that. And um, yeah, we really hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Well, Miles, today I'm very excited, and I know you are too. We have a seriously, seriously good guest on today. Uh, the one, probably, probably the best, most well-known we've had. Here's a towering media figure, beloved radio personality, Britpop drummer and interviewer extraordinaire, who we are turning the tables on today, and we're asking the questions to Matt Everett. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Can you record that? And can I have it as like as my alarm? <laughs> Snapshot. So I sort of wake up and I'm like, yeah, I am. 
Bloody amazing. I, very I, uh, for a fee, for a fee that we'll negotiate afterwards. Um, and Matt, I wondered if I could start by sort of plagiarising you, really. And of course, oh. I wanted to take you back to your first time and basically about how and when your love for music and radio developed and what was the point it clicked that, you know, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, the music thing, I always loved, I'd like, like, I guess like a lot of people, my parents played a lot of Beatles and Mamas of the Papas and mm. my mum did, my mum played a lot of cool 60s music, my dad played a lot of Wagner and really oppressive mm. German <laughs> really? music, which, it's awful, most of it. Um, yeah, it's quite a mix, isn't it? Really <laughs> grim. Very broad. Awful shit. Um, but then, yeah, <laughs> it was just always around. And then I think I used to, when I was about 11 or 12, I used to really like Queen. Right? I used to mm. love, still do. Mm. I still have like a bit of my heart will always be because it's that first big mm. passion. I remember seeing a video of them playing in Rio, some massive stadium. Uh, I think it was the Maracana Stadium in front of like oh, wow. a million people. It was enormous. Yeah. And seeing the drummer had a gong. And I thought, wow, he's got a gong. This is so cool. And there's half a million people going nuts. And he played a solo on the timpanis, which is just like oh, wow. as if anybody <laughs> okay. would want to listen to 20 minutes of anyone playing the timpanis. <laughs> even a professional timidity player and he had like leopard print trousers on and i thought that looks great i want yeah. to do that <laughs> <laughs> i've never owned a gong or a timpani or leopard print trousers or played to half a million people but that i just remember thinking how how amazingly cool it would be to do that i don't know where that comes from and obviously the adulation when you're about to hit your teens you're trying to work out the kind of person you are and what appeals to you and i think yeah it was it's it it made liking a certain kind of music made you feel part of a clique, didn't it? You know, yeah, it's kind mm. of gone these days because you can like everything, but back then in the 80s, it, it was it was defined by kind of cliques. So I felt I, I identified with being a music person rather mm. than like, you know, a fashion person or, or kind of whatever. And did you find your clique then with like the sort of Britpop movement and um, your band, Menswear? I think so. I that was one of the nice things about it was, was, was it did feel like all the best bands are gangs aren't they you look at the group you're like you look like you hang out together you live in the same house you like eat the same food you go to the same pubs you all like you go out together sort of thing and mental was really like that at the start i remember sort of running about just before we got signed running about on the central line and the northern line and stuff going from like interview to photo shoot to rehearsal or whatever all of us dressed in our like mod suits and it felt, it oh, felt wow. like oh, yeah. all smashed yeah, it was great. So I think that's, that's yeah, it's interesting that you, that you put that, yeah, that, that, that sense of belonging as part of a scene, you know? But I think everyone has that with music early on, don't they? You sort of feel like you want to be a group. Did you, did you think at the time you were in menswear, I guess you must do when you're in a band, that this is going to last forever and we're, I'm always going to be in a band. And, <laughs> and how long I was. <laughs> no, no, not because, it, yeah, but every every single band from that... Backhanders compliment, Gary. There, there is, no, but there's no, ba there's no band still going or very, very few still going from that period. So it's inevitable that something's, you know, it's going to change. But I guess you thought, this is it. I think it's, it's, it's weird because it's so... With menswear, it was so quick. I mean, I'd been in bands on and off since I was about 15. And I joined menswear when I was 19. And all you ever want is, oh, we want to get signed. We want to get, like, play tours and stuff. And yeah. so for the whole of, like, my sort of teens, that never happened. All my bands, no one was interested. Nobody went to come see us. We weren't 
<laughs> no and then i went to one rehearsal with menswear and the bass player was just like are we going to get signed i was like what really what? i've just like now it's yeah it's it's, it's going to happen and lo and behold <laughs> two months three months later it happened and then you don't really get, a, it's so quick. So you don't really get a chance to think, mm, what's the strategy for my career? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what's, I wonder what's, what musical direction we're going to take. It was just, fuck, we're on to in Japan, shit. We're like, we've gone top of the pops. So it was so fast. There wasn't really any thought to it lasting. I'm kind of, weirdly, I'm glad it didn't. I like the fact it was a really firework, you know, that kind of yeah. blew up and disappeared again. And because our show, our core, theme of our shows um the xfm show with ricky gervais like ricky because ricky was in a band a bit before you and yeah. then he got into radio and I, and you you had a similar journey because you you obviously after menswear you got into radio how did you kind of transition from one to the other menswear did didn't last very long did very well in a very short period of time and then just exploded yeah. Absolutely. and then i was a band after that another band who got signed called montrose avenue who, i've heard of them yeah, they were really good, but nobody cared. If you find any of their stuff, they sort of sounded like Crosby, Stills and Nash. In 2001, no one really cared about the sort of West Coast, Californian 70s vibe. And we kind of went like that and crashed them. And then it's like, well, what do I do? I presume it was kind of similar for Ricky. It's like, well, I don't know what else I can do because this mm -hmm. is all I wanted to do since I was 12. Fuck. The only other thing that I could think of that I was quite good at was writing. So I was like, well, I'll, okay. I'll start writing album reviews and single reviews. So I did that for free for like, you know, mm. while just trying to get someone to mm. pay me, mm. which is the point you get good, isn't it? If you keep doing something for long enough. We're still good. waiting. We're still Not waiting. Not with us, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It happens. Very, very skint for a very long time. Then that coincided with the dot-com boom. I'm a bit older than you, so mm. it, like, it's something you know about. But all of a sudden, everybody had lots of websites and dick loads of cash. So all of a sudden, I could write like a couple of single reviews to someone to give me 150 quid. be like, what? Oh, okay. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. Well, some album reviews, yeah, another 75 quid. Oh, right, okay. So all of a sudden, I had a career. I mean, Ooh. that lasted about a year before all those companies went up the wall. You'd go in for a on a Monday and there'd be this incredibly swank offices in this sort of music, new music company. Yeah, hi, oh, you want to commission a bunch of features and interviews. And you'd go in the following week and there'd be no furniture because the whole place would have been like, oh, <laughs> oh, like Take a seat on the floor, please. Yeah, it was. It was a proper crash. So that established me enough to be known as a little bit of a music writer. And when the job at XFM, XFM came, because uh, they were investing in their website, like a, a music news guy, to sort of do interviews and put on what was going on all online. And so I went for that job and I thought, this is it. This is absolutely perfect. This is this is mm. where I, I love the station. I love the DJs. And they didn't give me the fucking job. I completely <laughs> fucked up the interview. And they oh, gave it to no. someone else who about two months later fucked off. And only then... Did they come back and go, actually, we've changed our mind. Can you join the station? And weirdly, the guy who gave me that job is now my partner in my podcasting company. So and what, we, what was XFM like back in those days? Pretty crazy, I imagine. It, it was funny. It's I think everyone has a place that you work at at some point in your career. And then you look back and you go, that was fucking amazing. I don't yeah. know how anything. Yeah, yeah. But weirdly, everyone seemed to be doing really good stuff. Uh, everyone seemed to be drinking all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> constantly. I mean, at one point through the doors of XFM, we had Dermot O'Leary, Zoe Ball, Russell Brand, Adam oh, and Joe. We had obviously Sean Keaveney. We had uh, John Kennedy still there with Christian O'Connell. The alumni was just phenomenal. It felt really special because nobody was really... The evening session on Radio 1, which obviously played kind of 
alternative music and, and there was John Peel doing his thing up over there but a whole station dedicated to alternative indie music it just it's it's the only place like it and it punched above its weight so wow. hard i mean it was a pretty small place you get the cure coming to do sessions the, wow. the one and only time that david bowie was like that far away from me oh <laughs> and you're just working away and there's fucking david bowie come to do an interview with I remember it being a really big deal that, that we had like three quarters of a million listeners, which is nothing. But I think everyone knew that it, it was really important. And the industry, the music industry knew that you needed somewhere to go that wasn't Radio 1. You needed somewhere to go that wasn't Capital. Somewhere where, where you could get sort of Christian O'Connell doing these hugely ambitious kind of competitions. <laughs> In his prime, Christian O'Connell was, was, a, was a, an amazing breakfast show presenter. And they'd always come up with these really, really good annual big competitions. And this one was called Bounty Hunter. And the idea, you couldn't do this now. Over the space of four weeks, if you, you had to get a famous person to ring Christian during the show. You could doorstep someone, you might know somebody. It, it, it didn't matter. So you, had to, mm. like, you saw him across the road and the person that got the most impressive one or the winner with the most votes or the most impressive celebrity on the phone would get £50,000, which is a very big, big prize. And so it started off with like, oh, I'm mates with Lee from Steps. So like, Lee be like, yeah, hi, all right, Christian, yeah, my mate. Have you got anyone bigger than that? Have you yeah, got- yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a winner straight away. No, that's one. <laughs> and it would build and it would build and it would build till, till like, and obviously people would sort of like, oh, I've just seen like Russell Crowe across the road. I'm just going to run and go and get him. Oh, wow. He's not very nice. And also be like, hello, what's this? I'm Christian Oak. He's like, what, what, what the fuck am I doing? Who are you? <laughs> and then he explained the concept. I, th- th- I remember there was a day when somebody got Chris Martin on the line and Christian had to hang up because he got Angelina Jolie on the other line. Somebody <laughs> was a stewardess on her private jet or something. And Sorry, said, Chris, we just got uh, Angelina yeah. on the other line. <laughs> Sorry, Angelina on the other line. And <laughs> they, Angelina, can you talk to her? <laughs> can you talk to yeah. And she didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. She was like, my sister said that there's a 50 grand prize, which, and I can give that to charity if I win. Christian was like, yeah, you can do anything you want to do with it. So, so that's why, and it was off the fucking hook. I can't even remember who won. So it was stuff like that happening wow. all the time. Wow, like, where did the budget come from to give £50,000? <laughs> that was everything. That was all we had for the year. Yeah, you got me thinking, I wonder who else? Everybody. Everybody was on it. It was hilarious. Do you think Do you think at all that it's, as it's become part of the mainstream, as it's got bigger and in its current form as Radio X now, do you think it's inevitably lost some of that, what, it, what gave it an edge back in those days? I think what's probably happened is, is that the audience has grown up, you know, mm. and, and it, can be that the older you get, the more not safe or predictable, but it's more of a known quantity. They know that their listeners want the Foo Fighters and they know they want the Manics and they know they want them, that's what they give them. Whereas, you know, earlier it was a little bit more slipshod, it was a bit more random. You could get away with, with stuff that was a bit more like, are they really playing mm. that? You know, so yeah. it was a bit more freewheeling, but there's only so far you can go with that. So obviously, what they've done is think about the maximum reach. We were always regarded as the kind of we were f- the fourth floor of the big GCAP Capital Global. Yeah. And we were sort of regarded as the as the naughty stepkids in the attic. We like, <laughs> the sick formers. I've ignored or sort of brushed off. Oh, God, it's them. Because obviously Capital and those stations are huge, really massive, big, you know, brilliant pop station. We were like these sort of embarrassing kids fannying about getting drunk at lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish we still had did, that now. <laughs> exactly. Did you did you come much across Ricky, Steve, or did Carl do any producing or editing for you? All those things. So, Carl, have you spoken to Carl? We've been no, trying we, for we've ages, tried, honestly, honestly, Matt. He, he's sick of us, but um, yeah. But he, he, uh, Carl is brilliant. 
Carl is a really, first of all, he's a really lovely man. He's genuinely like yeah. warm, kind, smart, brilliant mm. dude. He's also a fucking amazing producer. I think sometimes yeah. maybe that got, got lost because he's so funny in the fact that when it comes to sculpting a show and getting the pace of a show and the music right and getting the sonics right, he was unparalleled. He was just brilliant. I mean, even without ever meeting sort of Ricky and Steven, the work he was doing was great. We did a series of podcasts at that time. It was the 10th anniversary of XFM and I did a bunch of podcasts with him and he helped produce them and he was just, he was brilliant. And he's funny as hell. Yeah. He's, you know, some people are like, they're almost like a character. They're good at being funny. Yeah. They're yeah. good at jokes. Yeah. He's just innate. It's like Eric Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Just as a mm. person, he's just excellent company. And then, yeah, you used to see Ricky and Stephen about all the time. I mean, I sort of got to be on reasonable chatting terms with Ricky. But you just yeah. hear the laughing. I'm sure Andrew Phillips said the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a, yeah. a lift on the fourth floor. Turn left was a kind of commercial team who we never saw. They were making money, proper jobs. Yeah. And then on the right was a little <laughs> corridor with uh, Carl's studio and then the main area and then the recording, the actual live studio. And you'd yeah. be working away. And if they're in, you just hear Ricky just laughing. You that shrill laugh. That yeah. laugh, that yeah. laugh. But I think also something else, I mean, obviously that show was really, really funny, but the music was great as well. I, mm, I, I Absolutely, I, yeah. I really discovered, absolutely. I got to, there's a guy called Jim O'Rourke who I'd never heard of until I think it was a song called Insignificant, All Downhill From Here, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favourite like songs of that era. They used to play some brilliant stuff. And Stephen said um, on air, he said, there's nothing that gives him more pleasure than introducing a song to someone, even if it's just playing it to a friend or certainly playing it on air, that will then kind of become something, it will become meaningful for them. And I guess for you in your show, that was a big part of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. That's the nice thing about radio, isn't it? You can, you can share, you introduce stuff to people and like you have that, that moment of like, mm. oh, you haven't heard this a cappella version of Gimme Shelter, which, oh mm. fuck, I have to hear this. And it's like, and then you get that joy, then knowing that someone else is gonna go, oh wow. And then they're gonna step back to someone else. That's nice. And making the podcast for them was just, you know, that and the Adam and Joe podcast that we did but especially the Ricky one. That was the kind of first, it was the first big podcast in the UK. Yeah. What was your involvement then with Adam and Joe? Uh, once again, I'd, I'd, I'd known Adam and Joe from just around and about a little bit. Once again, the loveliest people. Yeah, yeah I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because you don't always, just because someone's funny and brilliant and cool when they're broadcasting doesn't necessarily mean they are that way when they're not. But they were always just great. They did a version. Speaking of Bounty Hunter, they obviously didn't have the budget on their show to do anything like that. Mm. So they did a feature on their show at the same time as Christian was doing his big fucking all guns blazing, Tony Blair on the phone and here's, you know, Liam Neeson. Yeah. They didn't think of Bounty Hunter. And I, th I, I think Simon Pegg was involved as well. And Nick Frost. They sellotaped two pound coins <laughs> in the back of a fruit machine somewhere in London and then said, if you can find it, Put the money in and if you win anything that's yours and there was a bounty there was a bounty bar stuck on the back of it as well <laughs> i love that but they were all i mean really 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 funny dudes so yeah so we were me and graham hodge who i say as i now work with we kind of produced the back end stuff of the podcast we kind of help edit it with a guy called dave collier who was great as well and kind of turn these shows into podcasts and then push them out there and this podcast yeah. is now a thing. Some yeah. But did you have a because you, your background wasn't in producing like and editing in that way. So what got you involved in actually sort of doing that for these podcasts? Did you always have an interest in editing? And you just had to had to learn to do it really. 
I think. Yeah. I, I knew that the more I started to do stuff on air, talking and doing interviews, and then making documentaries is kind of, you have to learn to do all that stuff, mm. have to learn edit audio and work out what makes a good show, which is still, I mean, all those things are completely, completely true. You know, that's the, the three rules of podcasting, edit, edit, edit. That's it. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take that on board. It's learning which bits... You learn, especially when you're doing audio documentaries, and you must have this, like, you think, do you know, I can't lose anything. It's all, it's yeah. all brilliant. Yeah. No, there is bits here that you think are great that no one else will care about. Really, yeah. just approach it again, be brutal, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. Like, that's 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 the skill. But then while keeping the flow and maintaining the pace of it and where the gags land. Mm. And stuff. I, I think what I love about podcasts so much, because um, I listen to, like, loads and really diverse array, but it's just the authenticity and I don't think you get that. I think you had that with XFM, mm. definitely. Like, it was so, to use a cliche, it was so, like, rock and roll. Like, it just felt very edgy. It was definitely ahead of its time. And I feel like it's kind of a return to that with, with podcasts. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, those, those Ricky shows, they're so consistent as well. Yeah, they're consistently funny. It's not like mm, podcast mm. where you have to wait twenty minutes for a laugh. Have you spoken to the, Have you spoken to Matt Everett, the animator? I did see that. I did see the credit on um, an old press release and um, at the old um, archive website, which I've checked out before. There was these series of. I hope you can still find them. These animated shorts that someone did of bits of Ricky Stephen and Carl as bears. They were brilliant. I think he did a couple for free. And then the station was like, great, let's use these. And he was like, can I, I'll do some more, but I wouldn't mind being paid. So the station was like, okay, we'll give, you, we'll give you some money. Do you know anyone famous first? Yeah. We might give you the oh, Angelina Jolie on the last oh, Angelina Jolie, we'll give you 50 grand. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so they paid him for like a, a series of these. And then about a month later, I remember getting my pay slip from XFM. And my pay slip was about eight grand. I was like, what the fuck is oh. this? Being a mistake. I've been overpaid a load of money. What do I do? And I remember speaking to my dad going, can I keep this? Because yeah. I definitely don't get paid this much money. And my dad was like, no, it's, it's, it's theft. If you, if, you, if you get overpaid, yeah. it's yeah, technically yeah. legally theft. So I had to go back to him and go, and it, turned, it was his money. It turned out it was his payment for the innovation ah, that he did. Wow. So, oh, I see. You've got the other Matt Everett's money. The other Matt Everett's money. Yeah, he's, um, <laughs> yeah, he was a nice guy from my very small dealings with him. He seemed pretty cool. Good name. Huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's such a coincidence. What so obviously now you're at BBC Radio 6. Uh, so in the end, you left XFM. You're a, a, what would be considered, I guess, quite a, a more professional station, even though <laughs> XFM had all the... XFM was brilliant, but it was good for its unprofessional in a way. But now you're in a more structured kind of um, uh, show. How do you find the difference between then and now? Well, I'm still working with Sean Keaveney, so there's still an element mm. of unprofessionality in okay. there. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it, it, it's different because the BBC, you know, you have to get your editorial stuff right. Mm. Even if an interview sounds quite flippant or sounds quite daft, in the back of your head is going like, is this litigious? Have they said something libelous? Was that comment impartial? You know, all that stuff goes on with you. And there's there's an expectation of, of delivering stuff. Not a higher standard, but you're very, very conscious. It's a license fee yeah. station. Mm. So I've got to make sure that I'm representative of everybody's interests. You know, I've got to ask people sometimes questions they don't necessarily want to be asked. I've also got to try and do something that, that people can't get anywhere else. Hopefully do interviews and get insight that you can't get elsewhere. So yeah, yeah, there's still space for being daft on the radio. Yeah, yeah. How how has how has it changed with like access to like music music artists over the years? Because 
you were just saying obviously get just seeing bowie the cure live sessions but also what what artists are willing to disclose these days because i always think it's quite um they've been so pr groomed how open are artists now when you when you're interviewing them that's the job really everyone's really savvy everyone Mm. especially the big artists they know what they want to talk about they know what they don't want to talk about and that that's my job an interviewer's job is to take them out of that mindset of like this is what i'm going to talk about Mm. and i won't be diverted and bring them into places maybe they might not be as comfortable in or maybe don't want to talk about and that's that's in my case i my technique i'm not a big fan i'm not i don't for me the whole sort of confrontational so and then Mm. you it works for some people for me i don't think you work out who the interviewer is by doing that you just work out who the interviewer is when they're feeling set upon i like to think i get to people by making them feel really relaxed i hope it's an enjoyable thing for them and then when you get them in a space that they trust you or they feel comfortable with it then they know that you're not an idiot well i am an idiot but like they know that you're not <laughs> that you understand where they come from and if they if you've got some empathy with them then mm-hmm. they're more likely to explain themselves in a way that, that they maybe don't always do so and a lot of that is work a lot of that is just i, I never wanted to sound like there's lots of work going on I always want to sound really conversational, really easygoing, really casual. Mm. But a lot of the time, it's all absolutely, completely worked out. Some people never works. Dolly Parton, for instance, is amazing. But there's no way, there is no way Dolly talks about anything that she doesn't want to talk about. You don't know it. She's so good. You walk away going, wow, that was pretty. She was at the best time. She's amazing. You think, oh, we just talked about a new record. All right. How did she do that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then other people, it takes it takes a lot of work. If you're doing like if you're doing like a McCartney or someone like that, people have been wow. interviewed for the whole of their lives. Yeah. So why are they gonna tell you anything they haven't told anyone else? Why? Why would they? What's their reason for doing it? And you've got to think it's got to be a certain amount of empathy. It's got to be humour. It's got to be turning an interview into a conversation. It's a big cliche that, but it's really mm. true. I did a McCartney interview a while ago, and I wanted to ask him about how he thought he was going to be remembered when mm. he died. That's a really heavy question. Mm. <laughs> and it's not one that he would necessarily want to just answer. But I was like, I thought about it a lot. I was like, well, if I, if I frame it a certain way, if I talk about me as well, I was like, have you thought about how you want to go? You know, how you think you want to be remembered? Because for me, Paul, when I go, I want like a black carriage, <laughs> six black horses. <laughs> I want crying supermodels. I want, yeah. I want the world to know that I've gone. And he started laughing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then like, he was like, well, I don't really think. And then he was happy because it, it was a conversation. I was telling him something about, you know, making him laugh. And he was responding to that. Whereas if I just said, so how do you think you're going to be remembered, Paul? It wouldn't yeah, have yeah, been yeah. the same. So there's all those things, the kind of tools at your disposal, get a good interview out of people. Yeah, I, I and I don't want to sound uh, sycophantic here, but genuinely, I think you do that fantastically. You right, did at the start. Yeah. I know, I did. I know, but I'm, just, but I'm just saying your interviews are different. You're, I, I know what you're saying. They're different. You've got a very different style, and it is conversational, and it does. I think taking them back to the first time when X yeah. is sort of. Um, uh, something that must settle them and make them trust and buy into your interview. And I think that it's a, a real skill to make it, you, your, your interviews, listening to them, it makes it sound like it's easy what you're doing, but it's it's actually, I get, you know, no, but it, that's the skill. It's incredibly skillful and difficult to get it right, but you make it sound like, oh God, that's easy. You just got all that out, but it's, it's, Matt, it's absolutely not. Matt, if you go to your front door now, there'll be a bouquet of roses and, and a champagne bottle no, no, from no, Gary. No, 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 tulips. <laughs> <laughs> 
is that's so it's really really lovely of you to say that genuinely thank you humor is a re- humor is a real massively important tool as mm. well because people forget like yeah okay they're amazing superstars but they're people a eh? but also most musicians at some point in their life sat in a van like living yeah. on christmas mm. and staying in smelly bnbs and playing gigs when no one gave a fuck for a long time and so that that requires a certain sense a certain kind of person and a certain humor to deal with that and you can yeah. pierce that with maybe the exception of a couple of people i don't oh my it's famous person's coming the room oh shit fucking hell yeah oh, oh, come in. you know <laughs> I did an interview with um, uh, Trent Reznor, who's a serious guy, mm. a serious man. He looks like a serious man. He's big fucking black hair, you know, tight T-shirt muscles, serious dude, looks at you. Mm. And the interview was going okay. And I asked him about Bowie. And I said, oh, you know, remember the first time that you had sort of contact from him? And he said, yeah, he, he rang me up and we started talking. I was like, what? hang on a minute. Don't just say Bowie rang you up. <laughs> you yeah. must have been like, come on, man. He was like, yeah, okay, actually, yeah, it was it was pretty rad. So like, And all of a sudden, I took the mickey out of him a little bit because he knew that he didn't have to be serious. And then yeah. you get a kind of much nicer chat because of that. What about, um, has anyone, has many people been very different off camera or off mic I should say so on mic it's funny when the people are exactly like you expect them to be I did a I did a first time book a couple of years ago and I kind of wrote about this a bit because like say if it's like Brian Ferry or Elton John you've got this image of them as being like in in Brian Ferry's case like immaculately dressed incredibly Mm -hmm. suave surrounded by art yeah and and Elton John you expect to be like brash And like flowers and like, yeah. don't give a fuck, darling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you meet them and they're exactly like that. They're, it's yeah, not yeah. that. I interviewed Brian Ferry in his Kensington apartment, surrounded Bloody by water. <laughs> and he's got like velvet, beautiful velvet trousers on and a crisp white shirt and an incredible cardigan. Elton John, exactly the same. Sat, boom, sat right down there. Jewelry, jewelry, massive glasses. He was a wanker. She was great. That was fantastic. I was off my face for drugs for most of the 80s. And it's like, this is you. You're exactly the same. As yeah, yeah, yeah. the image of you, that's really nice. Yeah. Even if they're, even if how they are yeah. is a bit kind of not exactly um, the nicest version of someone could be, but for you, it's more important that they are true to themselves, how they yeah. present themselves in the mm. media. There is that persona that people present, like you meet Dave Grohl, and Dave Grohl is so nice. I bet he's yeah. lovely. Such a dude. Now, I don't think anybody could be consistently that nice. And I don't think to run a band that big for that long, you know, you've mm. got to have a pretty serious streak in you, you know, mm, yeah. sack members. You've got to drive that band. It's very, very difficult to do that at that scale. But his, I think his, the way that he deals with being Dave Grohl, the way he deals with like all the attention, travel, all the pressures, everything is just, you know, what, I'm just going to be fucking nice to everyone. Mm. And he's literally he comes in, he'll be nice to the people that he bumps into in the lift. He'll be nice to the person making his tea. He's just lovely. And he's like, mm. that's how I'll get through this. Because it's probably quite mm. difficult to be Role. It's probably quite, there's a lot, a lot of pressure of expectation. Yeah. So I could be an arsehole or I could just be really nice to make the whole experience for everybody a really nice one. And yeah. the whole thing becomes easier. Did you find it easier, like having your, with your experience in the music industry and being part of it, like the Britpop thing was so huge? <laughs> Were you like seen as more trusted um, individual because you, you kind of had that experience to like, back it up and also I guess you must have had some amazing contacts from that time who were clearly happy to open up to you rather than other music journalists or your 
there's two things there. One, one is because I kind of know people from being around. Liam Gallagher still says, Oi, menswear. <laughs> he calls me. I love that. Um, and Paul Weller's like, you know, ever get the band together back? No, Paul, I'm not getting the band together. But I don't think it's it's the fact that we're all hanging out together. I think there's that shared experience of knowing yeah. what it's like being in a service mm. station at 2 a.m. And there's oh, only, mate, I couldn't do it. There's no. that part of touring. There's the things you understand when you've been a, a muser at whatever level. You know some amplifiers always need a fucking smack in the corner to work. And you know that that venue has got a really hard loading because it's metal staircases up two fucking flight of stairs. Mm. And you know those things. And you know like how important the tour manager is. Not So when you talk to musicians, there is that understanding that you've got empathy again. You know that yeah. it's not all just like, and then I walked out of Brixton. And I'm like, hey. Was well, actually going to go, oh, did your parents come see you at Brixton? Yeah. They can never find parking, can they? No, it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. That might be Brad <laughs> or like Damon Orban, but you've but they've had the same problems that you had, oh which is trying God. to get parents on a guest list. So that's part of it, I think, is sort of knowing people knowing that you've been through a much lower level, but a similar kind of thing. Obviously, we're a podcast. We've talked um, previously about audio and the medium of audio and you have predominantly been involved in in audio throughout your whole career rather than visual and I just wondered if you thought there was anything particularly special about audio that elevates it to a a different kind of level that you don't get with the visual medium. Hey I'm shit on telly that was taken out of my hands so I I really but I believe in the immediacy of it in radio, if you want to do, quite obvious, but if you want to kind of do a, a TV comedy sketch, you know, from the point of, God, I've got the idea. This is great. A year later, you might have a finished TV sketch. On radio or podcasting, Sean, keep me whatever, you can go, all oh, right, I've got a really funny idea for a feature. Right, let's do it now. So it's, mm. You can get it out when, it, when it's fresh, it's not been thought out too much. So I love that immediacy and I love the intimacy of it. I love the fact that it's in your head and you listen differently to pictures. Even the way the brain works when it's got visuals and audio and audio and visuals. Another name drop. I did a show with James Murphy from LCD Sound System and I finished mixing the album of the of the gig. And it sounds great, really happy with it. And I've got to go back, I've got to mix the film of the gig. He says, and they're completely different. Yeah. When you watch something the way you listen to it is totally mm, different. Mm, and he said, mm. these two things, I, I've got to remix the entire thing because when you're looking at it, you hear in a different way. So I really, I mean, I spend a lot of time interviewing people, making programs, making podcasts, producing podcasts, developing podcasts. So it's all about the ears, isn't it? Also, no one's worried about their fucking makeup. No one's worried about their t-shirt yeah. or how they're sitting. Yeah. I did a bit of telly. I was a mastermind a while ago, which was fucking Oh, weird. really? What was your specialist subject? Mastonbury. I got like 18 and came second. 18's oh. a lot. 18's that's not bad. That's good. For Mastermind, that's pretty, that's good. And it was really good fun and they did it for charity and it was a load of money to War Child and it was all wicked. But the most, the thing I was panicking about the most was like, well, how should I sit? Should it, should, if, 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 if shoulders are back, does that make me look too studious if I'm, if I'm casual? Do I, how should I, all got a bit partridge, should, should I cross my legs? <laughs> all that kind of thing. And you see people who are really good on telly, like sort of Dermot O'Leary, and they just look so natural they're not but thinking they are like media trained though aren't they like some people yeah. are media trained yeah and i just i think it's some people are good at presenting themselves and looking comfortable and not giving a shit that's not for me i love it in audio i feel really comfortable just chatting that's, that's <laughs> kind of what we thought about audio because you get you're freer i think it seems like you're freer to kind of put an image for someone else in their head like so they're seeing an image it's something there's something special about that potentially and that's kind of how you just say my company cup and nozzle so we make a lot of podcasts i, I, I present a couple I don't do as many as I used to but then when people ask me to do podcasts you know it's it's always really nice to do them I, uh, there's a there's a Beatles one called I am the egg pod I've done a few times and it's just guys just love 
he said the immediacy, the freeformness of it, the the fact that no one's going five minutes finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there's a real freedom to it. Did you ever end up interviewing Roger Taylor? Because he was the kind of one that you say got you into music, that will fire that gong. It's funny you should say, so we had, I mean, my life is very strange. We're talking about backing up a bit with Ricky. We did a first time show with Ricky. It was really nice. I'm going to blow my own trumpet. We did it and it was a really <laughs> great music interview. Yeah. And he'd been yeah. talking, it was when Cemetery Junction, was that the name of the film came out? Yeah. yeah. And he'd been doing a lot of promo for that, but this was very much just about music. And we talked about, there's a Led Zeppelin song talking about Robert Plant. And he's got the whole fucking, he's the whole song in the film. And because I know a bit about music, I was like, did that fuck your budget? <laughs> because I know that if you want to use a song like that, yeah. it can cost a certain amount of money. Right, like, yeah. And he said, "Yeah." He said, "No one's asked me." I said, "Yeah," because that would have that would have really cut into everything else in the film. It would have cut down on your on the filming time, on the editing time, on, on on all these things. Because and he said, "Yeah," because I want I, it had to be that song. And so then you have a nice little thing where you're talking about something that no one asked him about. And afterwards, he said, "Oh, that was one of the best interviews I ever did." Oh wow! But yeah, so we did. Coming back to Roger Taylor. I did a first time with them a long time ago. It was okay. It was all right. They're very good. Queen are very good at, as some big bands are, of preserving their legacy mm. the way they want it to be seen. The Beatles do it. Stones don't give a shit. Elton John doesn't care. Queen do it. Mm. It's like, we will create the history that we'd like you to remember. So the Queen yeah. film, as much as it's great, isn't a very accurate depiction of what happened. No. But, um, you know, entertaining movie. People loved it. Did, did brilliantly. So it's like Queen very rarely, I've hardly ever talk, talked about the, the problems they might have had over the years with drugs or mm. interpersonal issues. We know they argue quite a lot, but mm. you know, no, they keep it quite locked down. But then um, a few few months ago, during lockdown, in a gap during lockdown, I got asked to do, um, do a Q&A with Roger and Brian and uh, Adam at Roger Taylor's house. Oh, wow. Okay, now... I live near Hampton Court, not in Hampton Court, unfortunately. <laughs> in the maze. In the maze. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mm. of course I'll do this interview, this Q&A. A, you're paying me, brilliant, need the money. Mm. But also, who wouldn't want to go to Queen's drummer's house? And it's fucking beautiful. Huge, beautiful house, really beautiful. And has got this incredible studio. We do a lovely interview. And the guys are really lovely, really generous, really funny. And like, you know... There's a massive poster on the wall, black and white poster of um, of the band, with uh, Freddie doing like a like a star jump above the drum kit. Oh, wow. wow! And at one point, oh, Brian was looking at it, just going, "Oh, when was that taken?" And Roger was like, "I think that was, I think that was that was '78." And they just both looked at it and both kind of went, "Oh, Fred!" And it was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, "Oh, that's lovely." Yeah, and it was just really nice. And then Sweet. after the interview, uh, I mean, Roger, Roger has had the best life, basically. He's a great player and a great musician, great songwriter. And afterwards, he was like, oh, do you want to come for a glass of wine? Oh, my Christ. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We trooped through this house into his living room and then me and Brian and, and, and Adam and some of the management who were dead lovely and dead cool, just sit around and just <laughs> hang. Like, there was a little bit before they came down when it was just me and Roger hammering a bottle of very nice red and mm. just chatting and it wasn't an interview <laughs> and it wasn't anything that anyone will ever hear and it was it was the 13 year old me sitting yeah. there oh yeah. wow getting so a bit pissed with the person that made me want to kind of start this whole thing in the first place and he was lovely it's not always been easy getting here but i'm so fortunate to be here now you know well, you've earned it you've earned but yeah, yeah but just because you work hard at something doesn't mean you're going to get the opportunity that's true no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very aware of the privilege, you know, a of being like a white middle class man. You That's do sort of look back and you think, you know, I, I've been incredibly fortunate. Yeah, mm. work, work, worked hard, but incredibly appreciative. Always have been, I think.
when you know mm. i love what i do if you yeah. find a job you love you'll never work a day in your life that comes across from listening to you that's yeah. lovely um and just uh, who's your least favorite guest i tend not to interview people i don't like i mean there's the bbc so if there's someone important in the news whatever relevant, yeah. then i'll do it i don't have to personally be holding hands with them i'll tell you about one of the hardest interviews that i did this is when i was at xfm talking about mm. punching and punching above our weight i got a phone call from someone i know who worked with james brown saying uh mr brown will be receiving this big honor it's always mr brown it has to i'm be not james. i'm not happy with oh, the uh, term mr brown i wouldn't mr. want to be brown. referred to <laughs> like mr shit no it's, <laughs> mr. Brown. it's mr brown you never call him james mr brown jb would be happy to not jimmy would be happy to do an interview with you 50 minute interview i'm like this is james mm. brown like this is one of the most important figures in the history of popular music uh, yeah of course i'll do an interview with you james but i'm shitty a cultural force like a uh, musician mm. performer like so, right he'll 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 call you at this time at half six on this number and be ready to take the call he'd recently he'd been in prison not long before so mm. they were like we'd rather you didn't talk to him about his prison experience <laughs> but his manager will call you and then he'll pass you on to Mr. Brown. So great, I'm waiting there. Which was, I'm gonna stick around, like, he's late. I should be going home, but no, I'm gonna wait around for the James Brown in. <laughs> that phone rings like that. Hi, this is this is James Brown's manager. This is Super Frank. James Brown's manager was called Super Frank. As <laughs> <laughs> Super Frank. Uh, Mr. Brown will be calling you uh, in 10 minutes. Please be ready by the phone. Yes, Super Frank. Mr. Super Frank, Frank. <laughs> I will be ready. And so he hangs up, wait another 15 minutes. Hi, this is Super Frank's assistant, Janice, whatever. Mr. Brown will be with you in 15 minutes. I was like, okay. Another 15 minutes, another call. <laughs> Mr. Brown will be with you. So, and this went on for like an hour and a half. I kept on getting calls going, Mr. Brown will be with you soon. He'll be with Jesus you soon. Christ. And then eventually at about like at nine o'clock, the phone rang. Is it there? I'm like, oh, <laughs> Is that Mr. Brown? <laughs> yeah. And then we proceed to this interview and I can't understand a fucking word he's saying. Oh, really? <laughs> he is so James Brown. The only thing I could pick out is say, like, it's good at the end of every sentence. So you'd be like, it's so I, I guess it's a real honor to be awarded this prize. As ever, it's good. Right? And I'm recording this thinking, can we put this up? I don't know. It's been a while since you've been in the UK. You're coming over next week. I don't suppose you could remember, like, the first time you came over in 61. It's good. <laughs> I love that. And this went on for, like, 12 of the 15 minutes. And I was like, well, I've, I've got to ask one kind of serious question because it was about the time that Michael Jackson court case was blowing up. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Jack Owen and James Brown had been friends. And I said, have you, have you, have you seen the news recently about, about Michael? I just wondered as someone that's close to him what you thought about the charges. And he went, is it bad? Yeah, is it bad? It's bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, can I ask you about, like, new music, Matt? Because... I'm really like nostalgic in my music taste. I don't. I feel like I've made my choices now. I, I know who I like, and I'm not going to listen to anyone post 2012. <laughs> I wondered what excites you about new music, and if there are any music artists that you that you particularly enjoy, you think are going to be particularly important in a few years time because I, I don't know if it is me and Gary both like idol we, we both want to talk to you because we, we love Britpop and we look yeah. very fondly on that period. I didn't grow up during it obviously but I far too young. But um I don't know if anyone's gonna be this is me being very, very cynical, but I 
I don't know how we're going to look back at music nowadays. It's just a thought. It's a really interesting thing because I kind of kind of go in both ways a lot of the time. So someone was talking, for instance, someone was talking about the Grateful Dead to me the other day, and I was like, I fucking hate the Grateful Dead. I was like, well, what have you heard? I, like, I haven't heard much. So I was like, no, just just give it a day. I was like, okay, so next week I'm going to listen to the four Grateful Dead albums that this guy recommended, and I'll just I'll immerse myself and just see if it's a thing for me. Yeah. I did the same thing with Tom Petty a few years ago. I was like, one of my friends oh, got, Tom I was like, I mean, I know Free Falling, it's great, but I'm not. He says, no, no, right, go do Tom. And so I immerse myself in Tom and come out going, I love Tom Petty. It's like the Matrix, you know, when they learn. Yeah. <laughs> boom, I know Tom Petty. And so I, I, I sort of try and plug those big gaps. Like I'm having a real uh, a Bill Withers thing this week. Like I know all the Bill Withers hits. But but I I haven't really delved into his other stuff and I'm really doing yeah. that. Well, I kind of that's how I listen to old stuff. There's a constant in the middle of like the Beatles and Radiohead, like oh, Bowie, always, yeah, yeah. always, 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 always. Speak my language. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> I still think the Beatles are the greatest. Full stop. But somebody said everyone agrees they were the greatest and most creative band in the history of music, and that's underselling them. Love Bowie, love Radiohead. I think are still hugely, hugely important. Uh, but as for new stuff, I mean, that's one of the good things about about working at Six Music is, you know, you, mm. you do get that constant influx of like, my Z I really like at the moment. I think she's amazing. The newer ups from the punk bands, obviously Idols are really interesting as well, really good. Those people will always come through. There will always be those people that are special. There'll always be a Frank Ocean or a Childish Gambino and you're like, yeah, you're yeah. normal. If you appeared in 1972, you would be fucking special then. You're special now. They're those people. But also it's easy to look back and think everything was just always great. You know, mm. when Britpop was around, there was a lot of fucking terrible music as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you just tend to remember the good stuff and everything gets sort of filtered out like a gold, like sitting for gold, you know? Do you think, though, just building on Mark's question, and I, I've got the feeling, I get the sense that bands back then and uh, musicians individually transcended music and became part of the culture in a way that they don't now, perhaps because of their, there's so much more music. Now that might be completely nostalgic and it's like, that's not true because there are people who transcend culture these days, but like Oasis, Blur, Radiohead, before that Bowie, Queen, Beatles, they were part of the culture uh, more than say bands today in my head. And I might be completely wrong about that. I wanted your thoughts. I think it happens, but it happens in, in a different way. I think I think a lot of American artists are better at it. I mean, you know, Beyonce is part of culture. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. in the UK, it's different because we're we're still we still produce so much amazing stuff. It's a lot harder to become part of. I like it when there's a song that that all of a sudden happens. If you want to sort of name check the Britpop thing, like when Wonderwall happened, everybody knew. Uh, <laughs> Gary's uh, Gary's uh, swooning uh, now. I'm just wipe my eyes, crying. And that, and that still happens, you know. It it it, it happened with uh, with Adele. It happened yeah. with yeah uh, yeah with Uptown Funk. You know, Wrecking Ball. Somebody says occasionally you just get those songs that are just fucking there. Yeah, and everybody yeah. loves them, regardless of whether you're a metalhead into dubstep into whatever and they're just like you yeah. just that's a great song it's just a great song i don't even know why i like it i just love it and i love it when those things happen all of a sudden it's on the terraces it's coming out of people's windows i love that thing when that happens that's that's always quite because it's so powerful when it's right isn't it when music mm. really does connect to people um one day like this by elbow i mean there's there's there's, there's, there's yeah, hundreds yeah. Of things that just kind of happen and everybody you know it, it presses a button in people and I love that when it happens. It's just this. Yeah. 
That's really nice. It's a really nice note to sort of sort of wrap up on. Um, but before we before we do, mm -hmm. I just want to ask you one of our questions: blur or, or blur or oasis? Because <laughs> you're talking to two Britpop aficionados, and I'm a and, blur and man. And there is a I've... there is a right answer and a wrong answer, so bear that in mind before you answer. <laughs> I've, I've drunkenly had this discussion in the past, so they are like both enormously important. <laughs> How can I describe this? It's like a symbiotic relationship. One, go with me on this. One can't exist without the other. They are diametrically opposed in a way that the one thing that one band can't do, the other band can. Yeah. So in my theory, the way that the early Oasis albums were written was more direct and more honest and more guttural and more basic and more impactful because there was almost no intellectualization of anything in there. It was just, mm. this is how Noel felt. This is what these guys in a garage in Burnage did. They knew these chords, not many. That's the tools they had. And they created something phenomenal. Blur could not be that unthinking. And it makes Oasis enormously powerful. That's why they are terrorist gods. Blur, it's about thinking about every element of the songwriting, thinking about the instrumentation, surprising yourself, second guessing yourself, being wrong, going down weird alleyways. Oasis could never do that. They could never write a song that's got the like tender. It's too, it's too. But they're funny know. as well. Like Blur, Blur had really funny songs like Sunday, Sunday, Bank Holiday. Yeah. Like, no, they had yeah. such a sense of humour. Like Oasis is the same for me was, was, it just meant, they meant so much to me, those songs, you know, more yeah. than I could ever explain really. Damon could never write cigarettes and alcohol. It's too, it's yeah. too, it's too <laughs> fucking direct. No. This is what's happening right now in my life. And Noel yeah. could never write No Distance Left to Run. Mm. He could never no. write anything no. as delicately pulling himself apart. I don't think Noel really writes about himself like that. Whereas Damon, no. his experiences and how he feels about things are integral to so much of what Blur does. So, but that's why we need them both. Is that but that, <laughs> but which one? I love Blur first. I went. I I was like I'm because I'm old. I bought Bang when it came out. I went to go and see them on the Leisure Tour. That yeah, that kind of freaks me out when I see them because I know them a bit now. That's kind of really weird. And this isn't a night. No, I don't want to get into this subject in general. But we had a terrible terrorist attack, and there was under in the vigils afterwards. You know, there was that lady, she just started singing Don't Look Back in Anger. And it just, it was so, and Noel was asked about that by, I think, Dermot. I think Dermot asked him about yeah. that. And he is the only time I've ever seen Noel get close to emotional, you know. It, but it really meant something, that song, to the, those people. And she came out and everyone can relate to it and remember it. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's my theory about Noel's songs. And I think he's, I've asked him about this in interviews and he's always kind of brushed it off. I believe his relationship with his dad was was quite fractious. His dad used to take him to the football. So that was the, kind of the thing right. that they did together. And so his young, his youthful experiences was being on the terrace, people mm. shouting and singing big, massive songs that everyone can sing together. And you get yeah. collective. We're all together. And I think that's mm. as much as the Beatles or Slade or whoever, that's how Noel writes. He writes because that's that's where it started for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why he's so good at those communal link arms, 
simple but passionate and real songs. And they really resonate. Um, Well, Mr. Everett, it's been good. And that was the interview with Matt Everett. I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Uh, We certainly did. Matt was just an amazing, just so open, very calm. He, he's in love. He's in love with his area. Like he, you can tell he really loves what he does. He loves radio music and uh, it really comes across and he really is talented. And I did, yeah, I praised him a couple of times. He took the mickey, but I wasn't, I wasn't being sick fancy. I, I, if I'd done that with every guest we've ever had, it would, you could say, oh, there's yeah. a pattern developing here. He's trying to be sick fancy. But no, I, I, Matt was just, you know, it just, he deserved it and kind of. And the, um, peop- the people he's met and interviewed, oh, like. Elton, just Elton for me is enough. Bowie, he talked about an interview with Paul McCart and Roger Taylor, who has kind of got him into music, as you have heard, hopefully, in the interview. The fact that he went around Roger Taylor's house and was drinking with him and they just little bits like a little bit I love from the interview was just when he was talking about that they were Roger Taylor and Brian May and they just looked up at the poster that was had Freddie yeah. on it and they were like, when was that taken? And then they just said, when, oh, Fred. Now, little moments like that, that's love. You'd never get that from someone else. Like just that's such a sweet moment. It doesn't take up very long in the interview, but it's like uh, the, the, it, moments like that. I think. I think in terms of not, I'm not commenting on how well we did this interview, but I think it was the most revealing, probably the best kind of most comprehensive interview we've done. I think in terms of what what was talked about by our guest. And no, no, absolutely. And also, Matt's obviously st- started his career at XFM, which is you know our specialist area. If we yeah, went on mastermind and we should we should say this like obviously we know that this is a bit he's a tangential guest in terms of he's a tangential link to the xfm ricky gervation we do talk about that and his meetings with ricky and carl during those days and he we spoke about that but oh, we do realize he is a tangential but in in matt's case it was absolutely worth it we felt absolutely um before we go gary should we just do a couple of quick xfm in the communities This is from Declan Swallow. All right, lads, loving your podcasts. I've gone through them now twice and I was lucky enough to be had one of my emails read out on XFM in the community. This is interesting, actually, because we've just been talking about it with Matt. I wanted to know Gary's thoughts on Britpop and the whole Blur versus Oasis situation. Both Uh, tracks are pretty shite, in my opinion, and don't hold up well, considering both bands were fucking brilliant in their own right. What do you think? I wasn't lucky enough to be alive in 1995, although Gary was. As I arrive in 1995... You're the lucky one, mate, not being alive. But that whole whole decade has formed the music I listen to. Plus, in terms of your listeners' youngest age and your demographic, I first listened to the XFM shows when I was 12 for YouTube. Every Saturday, I'd wake up and start playing an episode or two whilst I get ready. Loving your work, guys, and your interviews with various guests have only gotten stronger. Keep on doing phenomenal work. Thank you, Declan. And I hope you enjoyed the the interview that you've just listened to. Gary, Britpop, thoughts, question mark. Well, we've actually, funnily enough, just talked a bit about Britpop in the interview. Quite a bit about Britpop. Um, And just first of all, thank you for your in-comment, Declan. And um, I'm glad you're liking the show. Yeah, the tracks you're referring to are Roll With It and Country House. That was the, the classic. And it's, it's it's great that you know that, that you are aware. Not I mean, everyone's aware of Oasis probably whenever they're born, but the fact that you're, it still informs your music choice all these years later is pleasing to me. I like that. And you've got into the Blur versus Oasis thing without having lived through it. 
but having lived through it, it was it was crazy at the time, and it was on the news. I remember watching it as well. The fact it went on the news, you know, the fact that these two singles have been released, and Blur one they got went to number one, Oasis went to number two. But in the long term, it's quite well accepted that Oasis won in terms of album sales, like massively. But um, yeah, in terms of those two tracks, I actually funny I quite like them. Like I know they're not. No hate, no hates, no one says roll a bit shit and uh, country house is shit. But I don't know what Damon thinks, but he probably thinks the same. I like country house. I quite, it's like one of the, you me, you mentioned it in the interview we've just done. It's like one of their funny songs. And I quite like it. It's one of their better mm. kind of, oh, we're going to be a bit funny now. Like it's it's a bit cheeky. And roll with it, absolutely nowhere near like Oasis's best songs. But I'll say this. One thing about roll with it is Liam's vocals are fucking on point like it's not a hard song to see i'm not saying it's it's hard song, and i'm not saying it's an example of his you think it's so vocals. you think it's so easy you do it gary go back well <laughs> go back maybe i will be having a song of my own but no go back and listen to it like it's not the best song i agree and you know no hates it but liam the strength you have to have in your vocals to sing especially the opening lines and then because it's it's well, basically starts with the chorus it doesn't seem it like He's sung a more amazing, like Slide Away. His lyrics, his, his, his yeah. vocals in Slide Away are just fantastic. And his early versions of doing it live. Uh, when he does Roll It now, or since, since like 97, it's shit live. He does it terribly. But on the track, go back and listen to it. And you and maybe you'll appreciate it more. But most people don't like it. But I I, I love Liam's vocals on it. But not the best song, no. I'd, I'd actually pick Country House. That's one time I would pick Blur. I prefer Country House. But Roll With It is still a, it's still a great kind of... It's such a simple... Not many chords. Classic Oasis in that period of their work. And that's my thoughts on that. But as 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 to the question overall, you'll know my answer. It's Oasis. I prefer Oasis. <laughs> Do you know that. what though? That's that's a good thing what you just said. I've never thought about that because it does start with a chorus. Are there any other great songs out there that start with the chorus? I mean I think objectively yeah. Country House is probably the more interesting of the songs just because the lyrics and everything. But it's yeah. not my it's definite definitely not my favourite blur song. No, no, neither mine. It's just it's it's got um yeah as you say it's got interesting lyrics rolled it's got like the lyrics to rolled it mean nothing as often Noel does he just he'll admit that like they kind of they don't mean but it's kind of they are still Noel has that this way of finding something profound just maybe one line or even a couple of words even in a song that is full of like surrounded by kind of not meaningless lyrics but you know you've got to roll with it you've got to take your time you've got to say what you say don't let anybody get in your way. There's some meaning in that, but it's it's kind of Neanderthal. Like I, I get that, but it's just quite a good version of Neanderthal. Yeah. It's just not a good version of an Oasis song. It's not up there. It's probably my seventh or eighth favorite track on that album. Yeah, it really interesting, Declan. And as it, you should not have mentioned uh, Blur versus Oasis because I could I could talk now. <laughs> I'm going to now talk for the next hour on this subject. So I'm We're going to have gonna a spin-off podcast. Spin-off podcast. I could do a music podcast that was only Blur and Oasis. Yeah, that that? Was, like, that was I wonder a... if Matt would take me on as one of his <laughs> under his wing. Cup and nozzle. Um, no, um, so that's my thoughts on that, Declan. But really pleased to hear that you're kind of getting into that or have got into that. 
music from a different generation. I guess it's Miles. It's in a way like how we feel about Bowie or the Beatles. You can still you can still go mm. back and visit revisit those bands. It's well, just pleasurable for me that, that people do that. With like when Matt was saying that about Bill Withers and just exploring a discography that you'd never you kind of know all the hits, but you don't really. Very few people listen to a full album nowadays, and that's true. Like we pick and choose now. This is what streaming does to you. You're very selective about what you listen to. I definitely am. And so, yeah, I am very probably old-fashioned the music I listen to in respect that, you know, I probably listen to 70s, 80s, 90s music probably more than anything else. But it's it's all, it feels new when you don't know an album in its entirety. So just listen. Yeah. There are some Bowie albums that I definitely haven't listened to in its entirety. Do you remember I, I th- when we discovered the song Make Your Own Kind of Music? By yeah, McCann. So I, I discovered it, and then a few days later, I, I played it to you, and I just thought it's perfect for something. And then a few days later, it was the it. theme tune of our sitcom that never ever happened. No, but it might still might happen. Like <laughs> it, it might still happen. Look, um, look, well, I want to wrap this up because I'm bored of talking to you, mate. As I always yeah, say, I, uh, <laughs> this is a final comment. <laughs> so, in podcast news, it's going to be oh. the twentieth anniversary of xfm come this august this is an open invitation to all of you detrailtees out there spinnerspodcast at gmail.com or spinnerspodcast on twitter do let us know what you would like for us to do to celebrate this momentous milestone because i've certainly got a few ideas of my own we probably in all truthful transparency won't be able to do a live show this year though i really really want to and it is definitely in our plans we, we might be doing lots of stuff on Twitch. I, I yeah. threw it out there to Gary earlier that we might be thinking about an XFM mastermind where we invite we invite listeners Business. to come on and test their knowledge to create, you know, the Detroit the Spinners champion. Um, but I'm sure there's loads of stuff we could do. We're certainly working on getting Ricky, Steve and Carl, any of those guys and of Claire. the Holy Trinity. And Claire, and Claire of yeah. course. Um, but what are your thoughts? What would you like to see us do for the 20th anniversary of XFM? Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Uh, let us know your thoughts on the interview that we've just done. Also, as Miles says, on what we could do for the anniversary. And um, we'll be back next week with a show, the the show that a lot of <laughs> people show. know, which is the, doom, the one that starts on that real flat note. Right, everybody out, let's have a big show. Let's have a big show. Yeah, yes. So the the one that there's a lot of tension. But until then, you know, have a good week, and we'll be back with you next week. See you soon, guys. Bye bye.